We're in a series called Going Rogue, and we mean it in kind of a bad way. So we've been looking at characters in the Bible who have gone bad. Some of them started bad. <laughs> and it just tells their story of what they did that was bad. We're continuing that today with a guy by the name of Herod. History calls him Herod the Great. He wasn't so great. We'll talk about this in a minute. But I have a question for you. How many of you have ever played the guitar? See, it's one of those instruments a lot of people play. If you've played the guitar, then you know you must tune it. I don't care how expensive your guitar is or how much it's worth. If it's not in tune, it's not going to sound good, right? Same with a car. You know, some of you have had a car tune-up. I don't know. Something doesn't sound right. It's not running right. I think it just needs to be tuned up, and, and it needs to be refreshed. I, I actually had a, a 53 Plymouth um, in high school for just a short season that I bought from Steve Harris, one of our pastors here. Um, he, he paid $15 for that car. He, he charged me 80 That That tells you where he was in the scheme of things. But, but this is a true story, and it had a radio in it. Some of you remember this, and it had a little red needle that you could turn this knob and that red needle you could hear the noise it would find a station and then once you found the general area of the area of the station it had another knob you know what it was it was the fine tune knob so you get to the area and then you turn that knob and it fine tunes and it gets it that's what this weekend is about it's about you and me saying lord do i need to be tuned up do I need to have you get the, the, the knob of the fine tune and I want you to show me the areas in my life where I need improvement? This isn't to beat us up. It's not to make us feel bad. It's to say, God, we want to be reaching our potential. So weekends at Timberline, it's very important that you realize our teaching team works really hard to try to put practical application in your life for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So if you'll be open, I promise you, the Holy Spirit will reveal some things to you in your life. So here's what I want to do. Number one in your outline, if you turn your program over, you'll have a little outline you can follow. And by the way, our new app has this live. You can actually download that outline and fill it in as you go and add your own notes and all that. So it's going to be kind of fun. But number one, who is Herod the Great? Let's just... Um, let me take five to eight minutes and do these first three or four points, okay? Just, we're, we're going to go fast, but stay with me because it's, it's interesting who this guy was. Herodias Magnus, born 73 B.C. He was the king of Judea. He was known in history. If you Google his name, you'll have all kinds of stuff that come up. Be ready to read for two or three days because, I mean, there's a ton of information about him. The reason he's called Herod the Great, he's not called that in Scripture, he's just called Herod, King Herod, but in history they called him Herod the Great because he built so many amazing amphitheaters, he built palaces, he built cities, he developed so many miles of land, he prospered, he was wealthy, he made trades that were good for his people, mostly him though, however he killed a lot of people. <laughs> if you were an enemy of Herod the Great, you could die any day. He also is known, one of his big accomplishments, if you've traveled around the world in different places, you see Roman influence. Have you ever heard the phrase aqueduct? 
and they would take these uh, uh, aqua, they would build these aqueducts for miles so that water could run with gravity to, to provide water for cities. Herod the Great did a lot of that. He's responsible for a lot of those aqueducts. So that's why he's called Herod the Great um, in history. However, his hunger for power and like political gain is seen over and over in historical documents unrelated to the Bible. He was a ruthless leader. And we're going to focus on the Bible text. And the reason he's, he's in the series on going rogue is because of what history calls the massacre of the innocents. We know it as believers as the slaughtering of male babies who were two years and younger in Bethlehem. Here's what happened in a nutshell. Herod heard that the Messiah was born, Jesus was born, and he couldn't find him for a lot of reasons. The Holy Spirit told Joseph and Mary to move away from Bethlehem, so they did. So he just decided he would kill all the babies that could possibly be Jesus, and he knew it could be less than two years, so he just killed all the male children two years and younger in Bethlehem. What a terrible, terrible thing. This is the slaughtering. Matter of fact, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 15, then was fulfilled that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, saying, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel, who is kind of the, the, the mother in the Old Testament, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Sad, sad situation. That's Herod the Great. Now, I'm going to tell you one last thing about him. This is gross. And I, I, I was hesitant to even know if I should bring this to you. But you don't want to know how he died? How many of you are okay hearing this, how he died? Uh, you can plug your ears if you're grossed out easily. So he, the doctors, in 2002, medical community came together and said, let's figure out what caused Herod's death. At 69 years old, history kind of put it all together. He had a chronic kidney disease. I'm reading this exactly as they wrote it. Complicated by a very uncomfortable case of maggot-infested gangrene of the genitals. Ow! Oh! Gross! You never know what you're going to learn in church. It's amazing. He, he also, because of this, the last couple of years of his life, he was miserable. He kind of went insane, which explains maybe why he had all these people killed, these babies killed. But he, he tried to stab himself with a knife, self-inflicted stabbing, and his cousin saw him and tackled him and didn't let him do it. But ew, terrible. Number two, let's move on. Secondly, Herod was completely self-centered. He was a self-centered guy that looked out for good old number one, as we say. So you need to know that in the story before we go any farther. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is usually read at Christmas. Except pastors don't want to focus on the death of all these babies, and so you hardly ever hear about Herod around Christmas time. So it's appropriate we're talking about it now. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and he asked them, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? 
in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for this child. I love this part. And when you find him, come back and and tell me so that I can go and what? Worship him too. Uh, We had a phrase as kids, liar, liar, pants on fire, right? Right? Do you guys ever say that? I don't even know where we got that. Maybe it was from the flames of hell. Your pants would catch on fire if you lied. I don't know. But he was lying. Herod had no desire to worship Jesus. He wanted to kill him because he was king and he didn't want another king. So there's tons of stuff about this man and he cared only about himself. The Number three in your outline is that Herod really used other people. He, he was a user. And we need to know that right up front because it's going to challenge us as we talk about it. He calls these leading priests in order to find out where Jesus is, but he's only using them. If you've ever been around someone that just uses you, it's a terrible feeling. Our culture is filled with this stuff. I don't know if you would agree with me, but I think this, in America anyway right now, I think people use each other in, in do you think this is true? That people use each other in like politics? No-brainer there. Sexuality, big time. Just using people. One-night stands. Matter of fact, the whole sex human trafficking thing is all about someone using another person for their personal gain. That's what it's about, money. You see greed. You see dishonesty, stealing. You see, you know, make-it-rich schemes that rip people off. Identity theft to try to get uh, money. We are built by God. To be in relationship with people. That's a God-given thing that we have. And yet, we mess it up so often when we start using people. God didn't want us to use people. He wanted us to find fulfillment in loving people and being loved in return. There's power in that. And that is God's plan. Herod threw all that on its head and used people. The fourth thing, quickly, is that Herod was deceitful. He, he lied, he cheated, he did whatever he wanted to get his way. His whole rule, I mean, even history will point out all the lying and cheating and stealing and, and murder that he did in his, his time as king. He, he actually um, used people that were his friends and his family. And he had no shame in it. It's like he, that was what he felt like he was born to do. And I don't, I don't want you to ever feel used or deceived by someone that you trust. It's a terrible feeling. So, so all of that is the history. I want to go to how this impacts you and me in our real lives, in, in daily living. What's the practical side of a message like this? And what are the takeaways? So you see in your outline there, how can we block Herod from living through our lives? I'm not saying that anyone under the sound of my voice is, is Herod. But I do think the first thing I want you to write down under that is just recognize Herod in our own life. I mean, we, if we can say, I have a little bit of that in me. I've been jealous like that. I've used someone before. I've jumped at the opportunity to make 
money off of a, someone's situation. I don't know if you have or not, but just be open to the leading of the Spirit in your life as we walk through this. So how, how is it that we can recognize Herod in our lives? I think by being honest about the motives, the motives of our heart in everything we do. Not just what we do, but the motive of why we are doing it. Why am I meeting with this person? Why am I seeking a friendship with this person? Why do I want to be around them? Is it selfish reasons or not? I, I had a, when I went to Bible school in Missouri, I was a freshman. I was in my first semester. I lived in the dorm, eating cafeteria food. I was working construction to pay my way through college. I was poor, and I was just trying to get by. We've all probably been there at some point. So I had this, I made this friend in class who was a marriage student, and they had an apartment off campus, and, and he invited me over for dinner, and I was so excited. And so we went over there, I went over there for dinner, and they, I noticed that when we walked into the kitchen, they had all these pans stacked up. And they were really cool pans, and they all had lids, and they stacked inside of each other, and they said, we're going to cook you the most amazing meal you've ever had. And I'm like, okay, I'm for that. And they cut up the corn, and they wanted me in there. And they said, this pan seals the moisture in this corn, and it will knock it out. This is going to be the best corn you've ever eaten. And then the other vegetables and other things. And I'm like, great, man, this is exciting. And we get through, and we have dinner, and they're like, is this the best corn you've ever had? And I'm like, give me a little more. I'll, I'll think about that as I eat this. So I'm, I'm eating all this food, and we get to the very end, and they bring all these pans out to the table. And they're like, these pans are why this meal was so good. And we can work a deal with you today where you can own these pans. <laughs> I, I remember that moment. My heart sank. I, I literally realized, I, I'm not here as a friend for dinner. Even though I was, and we worked it out later, but it was so weird. But besides, I live in a dorm. I don't have a kitchen. What were they thinking? And I had no money. Listen, some of you in sales, I'm for it. You have great products. I've bought products, and you believe in your products. So this isn't about uh, those, those plans where you can, you know, the pyramid plans. There's a ton of great products out there, so I'm for that. Just don't deceive me and invite me in to tell me ahead of time we're going to look at some pans and have a great dinner also. Then I'll be good. I don't want to be hoodwinked. I just learned that word this week. I had never heard of that. I guess there's even a movie called Hoodwinked. How many of you have heard of that word? A lot of you have. Where was I all my life? My wife heard that word too. And, and it means to be deceived. And actually, if you look it up, it'll, it'll come up that it was with when they put the blindfold over the falcon to make it think it was night so they could get it to do things because it thought it was night when it really wasn't deception. Don't get hoodwinked and don't hoodwink other people, okay? Here's the question I want you to consider. When you meet people and in your relationships, at work, at church, at home, even with family, ask this question. Is my motive to add value to their life? Because I think that's the greatest motive of all relationships. I want to add value to my wife and her life. I want to add value to my children. 
That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking for them to do anything for me. I just, if you're my friend, you know what? My motive is to try to add value to you. I'm here right now today to try to add value to your life. That's it. That's my motive. And I don't always get that right, but I pray that we as a church, we as individuals, as followers of Jesus, read Jesus in the New Testament. He added value to people's life. Yes, let the children come. Let them, let them come. Let, let the lepers touch me. Let, let, I want to add value. I'm, I'm not going to be the cultural person who says, no, you can't get around me. I'm special. No, he knew that he could add value. Number two, redefine greatness. I'm doing a little play on words there because he's called Herod the Great in history. And I don't want us to have that greatness. I want us to have the Matthew 23 greatness. Okay? So listen to this. The greatest among you must be a servant. <laughs> not a king. Not the owner. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be what? Exalted. It's, it's almost like Jesus turns leadership in his culture on its head. Now, you know, it's interesting how when you build a message like this, you, have to, you read so much research about Herod the Great, and there's tons of stuff that you can't bring into a message. But one of the little side notes was guys like this had servants all over their palaces. I mean, hundreds of them. And they had people, for instance, that would oversee their slippers. Get out of bed, and you point, and they bring him, and you slip your foot. They had people who would put their robe on them for them. They had people who not only cooked the food, but who hand-fed them. I don't want somebody feeding me. Are you kidding me? But they did. That's the culture. That's the culture. And Jesus is saying, that's not who I am. I'm the real king, but I'm not that kind of a king. And I think we need to understand the power of servanthood in leadership and what it means to serve our families and friends. Number three, release others to excel beyond you. This one takes some real introspection. So am I willing to bring others into my life and enjoy watching them go past me in their accomplishments in this life. Probably a great example of this would be, I don't follow sports crazy like some people do, but I do like the NFL. I like watching football sometimes. This has been a tough year, but I always am fascinated by the stories of a, a star quarterback who, like, the team gets the Heisman Trophy quarterback and they're the backup quarterback Will this quarterback mentor this person who has the potential to take their job? Because if they wreck, and, and you see both in the NFL, you see some quarterbacks who are like, no, I'm not even talking to the dude. I don't want him taking my job. Then you see others who will help and nurture, and, and there may be more raw talent in the backup guy, and one day they're going to have their chance, and it might mean that this guy loses his job. Am I willing... Not in a sports world, but in a, in a spiritual world to say, I'm going to invest in people in such a way that it's fine if they excel way beyond my accomplishments will ever be. That's a, 
That's, a, that's kind of a haunting thing in a, good, in a good way for us to think about. Are you okay if others surpass you in your influence? How do you feel when that friend experiences more success than what you feel like you have had? These are all measurements of your heart and your motive. And if you have your heart in the right place and your motive is in the right place, then you're going to enjoy seeing people do things that you can't even do because you're investing and you're adding value to their life. Herod had none of this. Number four, measure success through obedience. This is a way that is super practical that you can apply in everyday living in your life, and that is simply asking God to show you where you're not being obedient. It's not about the money, the success, the fame, the followers, the cares, the likes. doesn't matter. What matters is, am I, am I obeying God? Here's, here's, let me just say it this way. You'll get this. Often around Christians, we have this phrase and we hear this ideal. It'll go something like this. Someday, when I stand before God, all I want to hear him say to me is, That's right. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's a worthy goal. So I'm not minimizing it. I'm exaggerating it. That's a worthy goal. If you can live with that being stated and mean it in your heart, you're doing something really special that few people can really do. You're living your life in a way that's for an audience of one, and that one is God. I think these are, these are very important questions. I want to make a statement about this because I don't want to be misquoted or misunderstood. Accumulation of things is not evil. Power and influence is not evil. Wealth is not evil. Success is not evil. As a matter of fact, God raises up people with all of these traits, to absolutely use them and spend them in the kingdom of God if obedience is your goal. Can he trust you with influence? Can he trust you with financial independence? Can he trust you with power and accumulation? How can I measure all these things at the end of the day? That's why the Bible phrase is obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than sacrifice. The last thing in your outline is live a genuine, authentic life. Live a genuine, authentic life. I, I've told you this before, but it's just a wonderful story of Dick Foth. <laughs> he's a mentor, a great, on our teaching team here at Timberline. And he, matter of fact, he's teaching here in just a few weeks. But we had a pastor's meeting uh, a while back. Uh, this has been a couple years ago, and we were in the conference room here in the building, and we were all taking a break. And so Foth gets up, and he goes to, to the door, and he opens the door, and he just stands there, and he holds the door for all of us to exit. So there's 15 or 20 people coming out the door, and he's just standing there holding the door, and I'm the last one out. And I said, wow, Foth. I said, that's that's pretty cool that you're, you're such a servant, holding the door for everybody. <laughs> he looked at me with that Foth kind of smile, and he said, 
if you're going to serve, you might as well do it in a place where people can see you. <laughs> he was joking. Okay, he was joking. But there's this, there's this genuine, authentic something. When you see that in someone, would you say it's attractive? They, they're just a genuine person. You, you, you get what you get with them. There's, there's nothing there that isn't real. They're not trying to uh, show me a, a piece of them that isn't real. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, this thing that I, I want you to just have it in your brain before we go out of here. The purpose, verse 5, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. So that's the premise, love. That's the goal. But how? How do you get that? Love that comes from, and then there's three things. A pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. A pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. He goes on to say, some people have missed the whole point. And now he's talking about the people in the world then. They have turned away from these things and they've spent their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about, even though they speak so confidently. It's image. What I want people to think about me, what I want people to believe about me. So I'm going to appear a certain way, even though I'm not that way. I mean, how do you get a pure heart? Can you do that on your own? I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think that pure heart stuff comes from the Spirit and, and us saying, God, I'm willing. I think a clear conscience has to come from that renewal of the mind that comes from God and genuine faith. How do I have that genuine faith? It's not pretend faith. It's not what I wish I was, and I don't have to fake it, but it's genuinely my faith in God is real, and it's strong, and it's how I live my life. So I want you today to think about with me, is my heart pure? And I want us to pray in a minute that God will help show us, is my conscience clear? And is my faith genuine? Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to this moment analyzing our own lives in a really healthy way. Thank you that you're not interested in beating us up or making us feel guilty or bad, but you've come to redeem. You've come to buy us back. You've come to renew our lives. Thanks for the tune-up. Reveal to us, even now, ways that we can have that pure heart Help us to live with a conscience that is clear and a faith that is genuine. That these things will mark us as the people of God. Nothing more, nothing less. With heads bowed in here and just in this moment of prayer, there's two things I want to pray over you, and that is those of you who have had a Herod in your life who has tried to destroy you. It could be a thing, it could be a job, it could be money, power, but it's usually a person. If you've already buried that and God has brought you beyond it, don't dig it up now. But I'm just telling you, if you're at a crossroads right now and it's got you stuck, there's anger, frustration, 
and, and you, you just, you're living, your heart's filled with this, and you don't even know what to do with it, then I want to pray over you that today you can let God take you to a new place. It doesn't mean the pain goes away. It just means that God takes you there even though the pain is there. And you let him move you from A to B. Because movement is what helps change our heart sometimes. That you're not going to live bitter. You're not going to let resentment win. You're going to have a pure heart. And you're going to have a clear conscience. And you're going to trust God for the renewal of the mind. If that's you, could I just... Just slip up a hand to God and say, that's me. That's where I'm at. I'm at that crossroads. Lord, I pray for this family right here in what we call the living room. My brother, my sisters, in the powerful name of Jesus, would you anoint them to be truly who they are in Christ. Heal them. Let them move beyond the pain of the Herod in their life who seeks to destroy. We know the enemy plays for keeps, but you are the deliverer, and we trust you in this. Secondly, I want to pray over those of you that find a little Herod in your life, that you're Herod. You've destroyed. You've said mean things. You've lashed out. You've, you've jumped on people for getting into your turf, and I just want to ask you today to be a surrendered person, to say, Lord, show me and help me, to, help me to knock that out of my life. I don't want that. And I don't need you to raise your hand, but just own it right now where you are. Lord, we pray, all of us pray, that our hearts would be laid open before you, that we would sense your presence, your empowerment, your grace to do the hard thing in us, and that we would absolutely trust you, that we will no longer have these traits that could destroy us and others. So gently prod us toward change in a way that it honors you and advances your kingdom. We give all this to you, Lord, because we are grateful for the power in your name, and we trust you in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen.